Dunn Stores are proud sponsors of How to Fall Apart, the support series. Always here for our customers. Hi, I'm Leon Hines, and this is How to Fall Apart, the support series, sponsored by Dunn Stores. This week is the mental health episode. It seems to me that many of us are currently suffering a little bit of what is known as reactive depression. That's a depression that happens as a direct reaction to a specific situation. A depression which probably wouldn't otherwise occur. So this week I spoke to three people, two of whom have themselves suffered from depression and one whose spouse suffers from depression and who herself suffers from anxiety. This is a really challenging time for our mental health. We hope in this episode to help understand some of the triggers, symptoms and signs of depression and to investigate some of the supports that we can employ. A huge thank you to clinical psychologist Dr Tony Bates, chartered psychologist Ashling Leonard Curtin and to innovation educator Gillian Roddy, who if you follow her on Instagram at evidentially you, you will know is one of the most reassuring people on social media. Listener discretion is advised. This episode talks about miscarriage. Ashling Leonard Curtin is a chartered psychologist, co-director of Act Now Purposeful Living and co-author of the number one bestseller, The Power of Small. So many people may experience reactive depression if there's kind of a big change in circumstances in their life. Some people might experience it in relation to a bereavement or it also could happen in terms of a loss of job, a loss of a relationship, a move to a new country, um, something where your general support systems um, have changed. And then as a result, you may experience depression in a reaction to your change in circumstances. And one of the pieces of research that I found really, really interesting that my supervisor um, shared with me when I was doing my training over 10 years ago, and it's always stuck with me. Um, and they, they did this research a number of years ago. I don't think they'd be allowed to do this research now because the ethics boards are much more stringent than they were then. But what they did was that they took some people who had never experienced depression before in their lives, and they asked them to do the things that people would usually do when they are depressed so they ask them you know to stay up very late at night stay in bed really really late the next day keep their curtains drawn stop exercising stop kind of eating healthy foods and so forth so they got people who had no history of depression at all in their life and they just asked them to just do these these activities that people who are depressed would commonly say that that's what happens to them when and start withdrawing from friends as well and not Mm. reaching out to to people or getting back to people And surprise, surprise, they realized that people who had no history of depression, that when they started changing their behavior, their their behaviors and habits in this way, they actually became depressed. Wow, really? Yeah. So it's in all of us in a way. It's in all of us. Mm. You know, our our mental health, our, our mood, our anxiety is massively affected by the context in which we're in. And our context is many levels. It's, you know, where, where we're living or not living as the case may be for mm-hmm. unfortunately too many people in our country at the moment. Mm-hmm. It's the relationships that we have and whether these are nurturing and nourishing or whether they're punitive and invalidating. Um, it's whether we're finding some sense of purpose and contribution in the work that we do or in our hobbies and so forth. So there's just, we, we all kind of want to feel like, you know, there's a point to getting up in the morning, that there's a reason for being here. 
And when that reason or that point becomes less and less obvious or when everything becomes less and less clear, many people will experience a, a dip in their in their mood. And what would what would be you've named them there, really, but the symptoms that people might be particularly struggling with now, like I would imagine um, things like um, that, you know, so we can maybe normalize for people how they're feeling. I would mm-hmm. imagine small tasks feeling like a massive mountain to climb. And yeah, and, and changes in appetite as well. You're yeah. completely losing yeah. your appetite yeah. or noticing a massive increase in your appetite. Yeah. Changes, changes to your sleep patterns. Yes. So maybe having trouble getting to sleep at yeah. night. While also feeling very, very tired. Hard to get up the next yeah. day. Yeah. Feeling like things are like a bit pointless. Like everything's mm. a bit like, what's the point in this? Mm. You know, like it just just feeling kind of a real sense of lethargy. Yeah. Um, not having a desire to connect in with friends or loved ones mm. um feeling like things are kind of a bit meaningless like it's kind of like the joy or the color's gone out of life yeah. a little bit yeah. um yeah so those would be some of the, the main things that, that that people would experience and the tricky thing when you're feeling like that is that it's the time in your life when it's kind of hardest to do the things that are mm. going to be good for you so like people will say like you know eat eat green food and go for a run and actually if somebody's feeling depressed literally getting out of bed and even getting into the shower can feel almost impossible at times oh yeah completely overwhelming and impossible and I think that is the really tough piece is that Mm. um you know I've been working with people one-to-one I've been working in, in groups in a hospital setting for for over 10 years and a lot of people say look I know what I'm supposed to do like I know I'm meant to eat healthy I know I'm meant to have a sleep hygiene whatever that's supposed to mean and you know I'm meant to exercise but honestly like if I can't get out of my bed like like sometimes even just needing to get out of the bed like even just to get a cup of tea feels too much how do you think I'm gonna mm-hmm. like spend an hour mm-hmm. creating a really healthy meal or whatever you and I think this is the really really tough piece is that often the times when we need to make those changes the most it's the times where we're Mm. least motivated or inclined to do so so how does somebody Um, do that now what I think is really important if people are feeling down is I really recommend just one small change just to kind of break up the pattern so for example if people are having trouble getting up out of bed in the morning but they really like a cup of tea or a cup of coffee I might suggest you look go downstairs uh, make your cup of tea or your cup of coffee after the cup of tea or cup of coffee if you want to go back up to bed just go up and actually give yourself permission to go back up to bed you know um and most people will choose not to do that once they've kind of broken the mm. pattern a little bit. Mm. Uh, and, and it's just making those tiny changes and mm. um, just anything that kind of breaks the pattern. Uh, maybe letting some friends and loved ones know that you're feeling this way. So maybe that they'll mm. know to kind of reach out to you um, a little bit more. And as well with exercise, you know, it can seem overwhelming. But if you just say, well, I'm going to walk for five minutes, mm. I'm going to do a five minute exercise video and if after that five minutes I want to do more I can choose to do more but I'm not under any obligation to do more Mm. and for a lot of people just breaking it down to these really small manageable steps just makes it that little bit less overwhelming it'll still feel overwhelming and often people's minds will say well what's the point in walking five minutes I might as well not walk any minutes than five minutes Mm. and just thank your mind for that thought it's trying to help you but it's not being particularly helpful in that particular moment. And just lastly, then, Ashling, for people who might be living with someone who's in that situation, <clears throat> both 
what can they do but also how can they mind themselves because yeah. that can be tricky as well it's absolutely it's really really it's really tricky to be depressed and it's also incredibly tricky to be the loved one of somebody who's depressed um, because as many of us know often when something's going on with a loved one it can sometimes feel even more painful than if something was going on for ourselves and we can feel so out of control so I think the first thing is just recognizing that you know this is challenging to 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 be living with somebody or have a loved one who's really depressed and to make space for your feelings um just because your loved one has depression doesn't mean that they're the only person who's entitled to feelings you're entitled to feelings too and very often loved ones will say that sometimes they feel a little bit agitated or irritated because they can see their loved ones doing all these things engaging in these activities or that are leading them to them staying depressed and just kind of if you can making space for that agitation if you can working with that agitation yourself um rather than kind of processing it with your loved one um who's depressed although sometimes you know we're all human and sometimes we will just let it all fly out at times and being compassionate if you do that but knowing that it's really important for you to reach out to your other loved ones and to share about what's Mm. what's going on you know mm. you don't necessarily need to say everything about your loved one but to share around what the impact is mm. on you mm. and are you able to kind of get out for your walks and I suppose the really important piece is not to take things personally many people who have a loved one who's depressed will buy into a belief that well if our relationship or our friendship or our family was strong enough they wouldn't be feeling depressed and almost take some blame for somebody else's depression mm. and just if you're having that thought it's a natural thought to have it's one that many people have um so just recognize that and at the same time this is not personal really mm. um you can if you wish look honestly and gently and say well if i take a step back when does it seem to work out better in terms of how i respond um to my loved one when they're depressed and you know um I have spoken quite openly about the fact I've experienced anxiety in my in my life and mm. my wife has spoken very openly about the fact that she struggled with depression and mm. at various points she will have low mood or kind mm. of depressed mood when we're together and what what we've noticed together is that the best thing that I can do is let her know that I that I love her whether she gets up out of bed or she doesn't mm. and that I want to support her yet there were times where I kind of felt like it was my responsibility or my duty to get up out of bed and let me tell you that never worked out well yeah. so um if anybody's listening and you've had that experience i'm a psychologist i should know better <laughs> and i still get it wrong sometimes but i think it's coming back mm-hmm. to that space of just letting this person know that you love them that you want to support them and just just asking and checking in and um Irvin Yalom used to say sometimes strike while the iron is cold so rather than striking while the iron is hot strike mm. while the iron is cold so if somebody's in bed in the morning that's not the time to be kind of talking to them too much about their depression because yeah. you know yeah. um they're finding it hard to get up out of bed anyways maybe later many people who experience depression find it hardest in the morning and it kind of eases later on during the day so maybe later on during the day just saying look I knew you were struggling today and I didn't quite know what to do. And was there something that I could have done differently? Like if I brought you up a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, would that have helped? Or, you know, if I'd opened up the window, might that have helped? And asking at that point, because at the moment where the person is in, in bed and they don't feel like they can get out, their thinking pattern is kind of distorted and they're probably not going to be able to tune into their body. They're quite disconnected and maybe even feeling empty in that moment. So wait and strike while the iron is cold if you want to have a conversation like that. 
I spoke to Gillian Roddy, innovation educator, about her experiences with depression. I suppose if we were to start, Jill, if you want to maybe, if you're happy to tell me a little bit about your own experiences. Yeah, that's absolutely no problem. Um, so if we cast our minds back, well, I cast my mind back. Um, my goodness, I was only thinking about this the other day. It's almost 20 years since I had my first diagnosis, which is just okay. bananas. You know, I was, and I remember because I was, after I graduated my undergrads, um, I went to work in the University of Hawaii at Manoa. As you do. <laughs> and, and I was working and living in Hawaii with my boyfriend at the time, who was a scuba instructor. So I was working in Hawaii in a lab and I had a boyfriend who was a scuba instructor and we were living beside the beach with a pool. And did I mention we were living in Hawaii? And, you know, I mean, it was just every dream come true. And I was miserable. I was absolutely miserable. And I sort of tried to deny the fact that I was miserable for a while because, you know, you're living in Hawaii and all of these things and it just doesn't make sense. So you, I put it to the back mm-hmm. of my mind and um, did still have, you know, still had a great summer and all the rest of it. But I came home, I remember because God love him, I, I moved in with my boyfriend and then promptly dumped him and moved back out again about two days later and said, nope, nope, can't do this, can't do this. And I had no idea what was really going on. And I went to see my GP at the time. And, and I remember, so if you can imagine, about 20 years ago is when, I think it's when mental health and depression, the conversation had really started to happen, you know, in mainstream. Mm-hmm. And I remember I went to see her and she had, um, I started talking to her and I was telling her about how I felt. And quite blandly quite almost boringly she just looked at me and she said Julian you're depressed (laughs) you know and it made it it made complete sense when she said it to me and Mm. also was the most shocking thing that I'd heard Um, and then she went into went to tell me that she had recently she'd finished a postgraduate course in mental health and depression and she then told me a little bit about how she'd had it itself and all of a sudden this word that I'd started to hear you know, as a 22-year-old, it had started to filter down through in magazines and TV, um, very much pre-social media times. And all of a sudden, here I was and I had it. So it was almost like a bit of a novelty. Um, and this was, it, it, it was great on the one hand because it made, it made so many things make sense. Um, around the same time, I had my first breakdown and it was a, it was a proper, I remember find, finding myself lying on the kitchen floor in the fetal position and just going this this isn't normal you know and then it was it was it was a real shock to the system but at the same time it was just something again I I just sort of it got on with it so it was almost like there was this Mm. this two there was two things going on I had a name for it but I still didn't understand Mm. what it was um and that was where the journey started and and the sort of there was there was a lot of ups and downs over the years. I think a lot of my twenties were spent in and out of, if not depression, I call them depressive episodes. You know that it, that yes. it, you're not quite in the absolute depths of depression, but you know that you're you're moving towards that point. And mm-hmm. and I suppose I, it's it's 
the fact that this all happened that started 20 years ago, I think is important because I've lived with this for 20 years and I've now mm. developed a narrative for it. I've developed it. My, my, my language around it has evolved, but it wasn't always like this. You know, for a long time, mm. I had these feelings and I couldn't put names on them and I couldn't understand them. And I, they really scared, mm. they terrified the life out of me. So I've reached a point now where I can talk about it almost in quite an objective way, but it's literally taken me 20 years to get there. And, you know, that's okay. So my, my 20s passed and I got through that. And then I had what I'd call my last really big episode was, was sort of in my early 30s, um, around about the time that I, I met my now husband, um, who I promptly dumped about two months in. Um, God love him because I could feel I knew I could feel a depressive episode coming on and I just went no I'm out of here this is not what I want right now um, but a, a couple of months later Les has gotten socks he reappeared and, and, and we got back together and, and he's although he's never suffered from anything like this himself he has a way of understanding us and I think when you're somebody who has, an, has had experience of having depression um, the people in your life who they don't necessarily understand it from a first person point of view, but they might maybe understanding is the wrong word. Maybe they accept that you have us and it just means the world, you know, being able to be your, your, your true self when you have depression with somebody is, is a, is a really incredible thing. So that was, you know, that was kind of the beginning of, of, of a period of, of, not just just being pretty good being pretty okay and then then started the um <laughs> what I joyfully now call as my my series of unfortunate events um and it's it's a, it's a long and convoluted story but I'll, I'll give you the highlights um so right before we got married the week before the week of our wedding I um had a bad fall and broke both of the legs in both broke both of the bones in my right leg in the lower leg so I ended up getting married I had surgery major surgery on the, the Monday to repair the two uh, bones and then I got married the following Saturday um, and had a lovely day had a great day um, in a wheelchair for most of the day and it's you know obviously we did a, we did a wonderful time but it was an incident where you know it was it was one of those pivotal times in your life and I think especially as a woman you're told that your wedding day is going to be the most amazing day of your life and it's going to be superb and it's this and you plan and you stress and all of these things and it went very very differently you still had an amazing day but it changed and I found that very difficult to wrap my head around but anyway you know time has a habit of marching on and shortly afterwards I got pregnant and the following July um, my daughter was born and when she was two days old she got diagnosed with a, with a heart murmur and actually she had it turns out that she had a hole in her heart so she had something called a medium BSD so she went under the care of a cardiologist and life started to go back to something resembling normal and she was in under the care of the cardiologist and this went on for a year, the following year, when she went in for her one-year checkup, um, the cardiologist said, "Okay, look, you know, we need to make a call on this. Her heart isn't performing the way it should now, and we're starting to see signs that her heart is beginning to fail. So we need to take action." And we said, "Oh, wow, okay." So she was booked in for heart surgery. 
And that same week, I found out that I was pregnant with my second pregnancy, which had taken a while. And um, we've been trying for, for a little bit. Um, well, for us anyway, because everything had happened so quickly the first time around. And so a few weeks later, she went for her heart surgery. So she was like a one-year-old going in. And I'll never forget that feeling of, of they, they let me hold her when she was put under anesthetic. And I don't know, it, it, it's, it's something that you can't really describe, but holding your child and having them go just completely limp under your arms. It's, it's a very strange feeling. And um, at that time, that same week, I'd been for an early scan and we'd been told that the heartbeat of the pregnancy was very low, that it was really too low. So I'll never, ever forget that night that I spent with her in Crumlin. And, oh, huge shout out to Crumlin. The cardiology unit are just, they're mind-blowing. Incredible people. But I'll never forget that night. She came out of surgery and I stayed with her overnight. And I remember looking at her going, you know, we've successfully saved your heart. But there's another heartbeat in my belly that I can't do anything about it. And it's going to die. And it was just you know it, it's the kind of thing that you know as, as a human being as a mother you, you just never anticipate having these types of thoughts or having to be in this kind of situation and I remember I, so I unfortunately I did lose that second pregnancy but after the loss I was really lucky I got pregnant very very quickly afterwards and the following October my son was born and um and this is, yeah, so he was, he was born and when he was six days old, um, when he was six days old, I was holding him, but I wasn't holding him tightly enough. And he had a fall from my arms and he fell onto a tile floor and knocked his head on a, on a sink on the way down. And he suffered two head fractures. So he's six days old in Crumlin in the um, in the CAT scanner. I mean, it's this tiny little thing. Um, and they, they found that the two head fractures and they said they were going to transfer him to Temple Street. And of course, I, I, I know now with hindsight that if you're in an A&E, especially children's A&E, they have to give you an A&E, but they'll give you the full spectrum of outcomes. You know, they'll say, things could be absolutely perfect or things could be the worst of the worst and I pushed them for an answer to find out and they, they did tell me in Crumlin that he might not make it and I, I spent a blue light ambulance journey holding my six-day-old son wondering if it was the last time I was going to see him alive and my husband never really knew what triggers were until after that because and still to this day, um, if, I, if I'm out walking and a, and a blue light ambulance goes speeding past, I, I have a very, I have a visceral reaction to that. Um, it's, you know, I guess it's a, it's, a, it's a form of PTSD or something, but I, I, I have a full reaction to it. Um, but we got to Temple Street and, you know, they, they told us almost immediately, he, he's going to be okay. He's going to be fine. You know, we're going to look after him and everything will be okay. And sure enough, you know, he spent a few days in Temple Street um, and took amazing care of him. And he is absolutely grand. Had a follow-up a few months later. He's, he's just, he's absolutely magic. Um, but I still hold 
a lot of stuff inside me around that. Um, and I know that I have to be really careful about my mental health where that's concerned because something like that can very easily trigger a spiral of really nasty thoughts in my head if I allow myself to think about it too much. Um, but the two kids, my two children are, as my neighbours will attest to at the moment with the screaming and the, you know, the, the, the hijinks that happen in the back garden every day, they are absolutely fine. Um, thank goodness. Um, and I thought after that, that's it. That is surely it. We are absolutely done. And I really did think at that stage that, you know, we are surely done. And I was, I could feel my, my head was beginning to go into some bad places again. So the depression came back and it was like an old friend had come to visit again. And there was weird sense of familiarity and comfort to us, even though it was completely miserable. You know, you're just, here you go again. But it's, it's something that's at least now that I'm, I don't say comfortable. Comfortable is the wrong word, but I recognize us. Um, and, and it was there and I knew what it was. Um, and certainly in mind, you know, trying to think back and, and when I cast my mind to those, those earlier episodes, the fear mm. of not knowing what's happening and not recognizing what it is, is arguably one of the hardest parts my experience yeah. anyway of dealing with depression is totally. just the absolute fear because mm. your your mind goes to places that you just know it was capable of going you know and mm. it's this real catch-22 situation constantly you know that you're you're thinking how how can I do these things and then you sort of go you're not right in the head are you and it just sort of perpetuates mm. itself so so yeah, depression is, and, and I fully expect that at some point in the future, it, it may well come back. And if it does, you know, I'll work with us. I won't look forward to it, I won't enjoy it, but I'm just one of those people who, who will live with this on and off. Does that fear, um, especially in the earlier years, um, then make slow you down in dealing with it in the sense that you're kind of scared to look at the dark. You can be, it can be scary to look at the dark stuff. And so you repress or avoid or do anything you can do to avoid actually going there, if that makes sense. Even though it's so overpowering at the same time. It, it makes complete sense. It makes complete sense. And absolutely, yes. There's, you, 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 you fully, when I say you, well, certainly I fully, um, the fear stopped me from addressing so many things mm. because when you start to look into it, addressing your depression is an incredibly difficult thing to do because it means yeah. looking at yourself in a way that you don't normally have to do on a day-to-day basis. And you have to, you have to really look at your true self in some very stark ways. And and I think that certainly in my case, it meant me admitting to myself um, that maybe some of the behaviors I was engaged in weren't very good for me. It meant admitting that some of the decisions I'd made, not that I, they weren't to blame, 
but that for for my depression and I would never ever ever um blame myself for having depression but I also at the same time had to understand that decisions or behaviors or things that I did may have resulted in a situation that contributed to it so I, I really had to learn how to take responsibility for myself and responsibility for my actions and that is terrifying absolutely terrifying um but to really stress that it's it, it's it's at no point I'm sure I probably in fact I know I did blame myself and you start thinking you know God, I'm weak and I, I should be stronger than this and other people don't react like this to these situations and but it's in addressing your behaviors and addressing your 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 decisions it's not you blaming yourself it's you understanding okay so you know i'm i'm prone to thinking a certain way about a certain situation you know so maybe it'd be a really good thing if i maybe didn't do that anymore you know and that can be something as as simple for certainly for me <laughs> i mean even at the moment with social media I have to be really careful about how much time I spend on social media because, you know, it's very, very easy for even the most put together person to be watching this, these very curated feeds, you know, and these, the, the cherry picking of information and, and you can very quickly get into a, a sliding scale of, well, I don't do that, or I'm not that funny, or I don't, my house doesn't look like that. So that's what I mean. It's, 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 but it can be very scary to to admit that to yourself that something that you you think is a comfort to you actually might not, and that's that's terrifying. I think I think it's interesting about what's not being said. I think that's the really that's the bit that stands out for me is how much we're not mm -hmm. talking about things. Um, mm -hmm. Anger is a really funny one because at the moment anger is it's something of an acceptable response to what's happening right mm. now it's okay for us to get yeah. angry on twitter it really is mm. okay for us to get angry because anger is something that is seen as it's it's an emotion and a feeling that, that social media facilitates so when people get angry it's it's very often not seen as anything other than anger and it's, it's very easy to contextualize it under the current current conditions yeah. we're in a pandemic of course people yeah. are angry but what i'm what i'm finding really interesting is is what we're that we're not talking about just how isolating this is we're not talking about mm. the loneliness that people are feeling we're not talking about just how overwhelmed we're all feeling right now we're not talking mm. about the sadness that we all feel about we didn't know that February was the last time we were going to see our friends, you know, for months on end. We didn't know in February that that was the last time we were going to bring our kids to the park without fearing that, you know, somebody was going to give out to us or we'd be passing on something. So there's all of this stuff that's not being spoken about. Um, mm. The acceptable responses at the moment that everybody is, that we're seeing a lot of, Anger is an acceptable response, and there's there's uh, there's an almost a I won't say a healthy cynicism, a cynicism that, that cynicism that people are feeling, you know, that's not really happening, or, or the denial, I suppose. All it's mm -hmm. also an accepted response in that 
people aren't challenging it as, as a mental health attitude. They're challenging it as mm-hmm. what you're talking about. You know, of course, there's a pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. But, and then there's also that, that idea of, of hope, you know, oh, we're going to get through this and this, that acceptance. But all of the research around, and although we have COVID-19, the pandemic is, it's obviously novel, but we haven't been in this situation before. What mm. we do have a lot of research on is, is what happens to people when they're in isolation. You know, and there's been a number okay. of different situations um, that we can do research around that from previous pandemics, but also for things like um, uh, there's some brilliant research done around astronauts and people who spend a lot of time in space. And there's there's mm. some really mm. juicy information out, out there around around information about people who's, who are in isolation. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this period of isolation is going to have a quantifiable mm-hmm. effect on people's mental health. That's irrefutable yeah. at this point. It's absolutely irrefutable. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that everybody is going to see their mental health being challenged, but we know that there will be a substantial portion of the population who are going to mm. see their mental health being affected negatively as a result of what's happening right now. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about that in any way, shape, or form. Mm. We're throwing Zoom mm. quizzes at us. We're, you know, we're, <laughs> yeah. we're, we're looking at online shopping. We're talking about what do you want to do? You know, what's the first thing you're going to do when this all lifts? What we're not doing is we're not really having those conversations that need to be had, asking people mm. in a very safe and acceptable, accepting way how are you really mm. you know even like we did when we when we started this and we said mm. how are you mm. you know we say oh yeah, yeah i'm grand i mean there's a pandemic and we're in isolation yeah. but i'm doing grand um mm-hmm. we're not digging into what's really going on behind that um and mm. so we're creating this despite the fact that we are now living through arguably what is going to have the, the biggest effect, the biggest mass effect on the on our global population in terms of mental health, we're not addressing mm. it head on. And we're, we're falling back mm. into that habit of um, when you ask somebody, how are they? Really, the only acceptable response is I'm fine, because, mm-hmm. you know, if they say otherwise, that means that you have to start addressing that. And there's a brilliant researcher, mm. Dr., um, Dr. Mark Brent. Bennett, who, who does a lot of work around that in around um, emotional intelligence. I'm pretty sure it's Mark Bennett or Beckett. Um, but it's, yeah, so despite the fact that we are living through something that we know for a fact is going to affect people, people's mental health in a negative way, we are not proactively mm-hmm. doing anything about that. And that's really mm-hmm. worrying. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's worrying for lots of different reasons. You know, those of us who've been through it, you know, like I said, it's our mm. old friends, you know, we kind of see it coming, you know, and there's been times, even this morning, I woke up this morning and I hadn't slept particularly well. Um, and I was having a conversation with myself in the shower and I just said, how am I really? And I just said, I'm low. I'm low. Mm. You know, today, this morning mm. I was low. Um, mm. And I have, I have the don't get me wrong I don't know I do not have the answer and how to deal with this it's very 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 far from us but for now acknowledging the fact that I'm low is enough for me to keep going through the day 
it means that mm. I'm not seeking answers to it. I'm not thinking about the past and wondering, is it because of this, is it because of that, is it because I'm trying to find answers. I'm not, as, as human, as human animals, we have this unique uh, phenomenon around us as humans that unlike every other animal, we spend way more time in the past and more time in the future than we ever do in the present. And yeah. that is both one of the most magical things about us and also what often leads to our downfall because mm. we have this tendency to, to either be ruminating about what happened in the past or worrying about what might happen in the future as opposed to just saying, how am I feeling right now? And whatever that is, that's okay. Mm. Just acknowledge however you're feeling in the moment. And this morning I felt low. And mm. I've taught myself to not try and look for reasons as to why I'm feeling low. Was it because I said this yesterday or maybe that conversation? And did I do that wrong? And and it could be very so very easy to do that. Or is it that I'm low because I might not see my, my parents for a really long time? Or is it because this might not happen or that might I was low? That's it. Mm. Yeah. And and it's and it's but those are those are skills that I learned through therapy and through talking to people. So it's not that I have this magical ability. Those are things that I learned in the same way that I learned biology in the same way that I, I very badly learned history and the same way I learned everything. And just, <laughs> we're not addressing the fact that we, we're not equipping people with the skills mm. that they're going to need to survive the aftermath of the pandemic. And I think that's really worrying. In your... Um from your experiences um, and I'm, I, I feel like I'm asking her to save the world Jill but what would you <laughs> be waiting a long time now <laughs> in, in, in five short sentences um, like I think the point you made there is so good as a starting point of like because sometimes um, when you try to engage with it and wrestle with it you actually end up fueling it yeah. and you know giving it more strength so I think as a starting point you're so spot on there that just accepting it yeah. not digging into it necessarily but acknowledging it is such a helpful thing to say to people who might be feeling like that anything else that you would then suggest like you're saying in terms of what we're all going to be dealing with um that might help people to kind of um I was gonna say cushion the blow but it's not cushion the blow but kind of um help with what they are going to be dealing with the, the, the impact on mental health yeah I think that we're I think that we're going to have to figure out ways to adjust our new realities that mm. again mm. there's this funny thing going on right now that we're ignoring the reality of the COVID-19 pandemic for a lot of people we're still mm. watching our tv screens and and you know on social media and we all need distractions of course we do we absolutely do mm. But what we're not doing is addressing the reality of the situation on a practical day-to-day -day basis. So what's it really like for a 27-year-old living in a studio apartment on their own who before this went out two, three, four nights a week and now their social life and their connection with people has gone? What's their reality mm -hmm. now? And what does that mean? And what what is life like for them? For you know, for a lone parent of two children who's trying to work full time and also look at you, what does that really look like in all of its, its mm. nuts and bolts? And I think that 
one of the things that we can do is try and identify peers, people who, you know, who, who might be in similar situations or at least understand who get us. Um, yeah. And so then on the days when you're just going, when you're sitting on the stairs and you just are in floods of tears because everything becomes so mm. overwhelming, whatever those things are, that you can pick mm-hmm. up the phone to whoever it is and say, I'm having a really bad day. How are you? Mm. You know, and they, they can yeah. say, I, I get it. I think that peer-to-peer support is, is something that is going to be incredibly important in the next so right. few yeah. months. It's funny, I was having oh, a conversation a with my mum recently about this is before the, the announcement about the, the, the easing of restrictions. And I say, Mum, they, they really, you know, they have to consider at this point, you know, that people's mental health is going, are going to be affected. Mrs. Lashley's sharps attack. Jill, when have they ever cared about our mental health? Sure. Services are already, you know, at mm. a loss. And she she's absolutely yeah. right. You know, there's, mm. I think there's, there's a nod to, in all of the speeches, there's, a, there's always a nod to, I know we're finding this very hard. We need to look at that. What does that mean? We're all finding yeah. this very hard. What does that mean in practical terms? Mm. What do we really need on a day-to-day mm. basis? And I think in the, mm. the immediate, in our immediate times, figuring out the people who are going to be able to peer support us and in the work that I do, we, we would do an awful lot of, of work around, I work a lot in, in experiential learning with adult learners. So it's it's around people learning through doing. And when we do teamwork or we do a lot of, of group work, one of the things that we talk about is, is establishing contracts with people. And it sounds very officious, you know, but what it really means is having a conversation with people to find out What's your preferred way of communicating? What are your boundaries? When's your preferred time of communicating? And and what? And actually, there, there's merit in thinking like that about peer-to-peer support as well. Um, and I said this earlier, mm-hmm. being mindful about who it is that you contact. So I would have a couple of friends who we've had conversations around. You know, what does it look like if I text you and you're not having a good day? What does that look like, and what's that going to mean? You know, and it might mm. be something as simple as, mm. are you okay to take a call? I'm having a bad day. And they might fire back yeah. and go, Jill, yeah. not today, I'm not in the mood. We're going, Grant, that's fine. Mm. Um, and I think that peer-to-peer yeah. support is going to evolve. I'd love to see it evolving in that way, that we're able to open up those conversations with each other and say, do you know what? I think mm. we, we're going to need to support each other through this. So what does that look like? How yeah. are we going to do that yeah. well? You know, we're grown-ups let's communicate properly what does that look like to you yeah and that might mean talking to each other over a glass of wine on zoom because they are hard conversations to have and you might need a little bit of a a warmer up or bus yeah being Mm. able to figure out who it is who's in your camp and you can talk to and figure out the best ways to do that because we can talk a lot about you know the big picture the mental health services and all of that stuff but that reality isn't going to come back in for a really long time and we're going to need to find more immediate ways to mm. just keep going on a day-to-day basis between now and then. I spoke to psychologist Dr. Tony Bates about his own experiences with depression. 
it's a, probably important to back up because mm-hmm. um, before we start using even words like depression, mm-hmm. because you know there's 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 life, you know, and uh, life brings with it sorrows and losses and disappointments and setbacks, mm-hmm. and you know they they are the the, the stuff of of everyday grief, you know, and we all get them, you know, and most people weather those storms and they kind of come through them, okay? Um, and, and I think it's very important to, to just, we, we got to decide, are we going to accept that life includes those kind of experiences much as we would wish they didn't? Um, are we just going to get drugged all the time and space out and not live life? I mean, it's a, it's a decision to, to be or not to be, but if we're choosing to be, we have to take the whole package. Um, now, depression, I think, is something else. It's when you add in to sorrow and disappointment some element of self-blame. You, you begin to see yourself as the cause of that. And you, you not only experience the loss, but you then begin to focus on yourself as a loser. Um, and that's when the problem begins, because you go down the, the rabbit hole into a, a dark place and you um, become, you know, I shouldn't have lost this. I should have done something else. I should have been better prepared for this crisis. I shouldn't be, you know, I should have taken that other job. Or, you know, I mean, there's so many mm. things you can you can blame yourself for. And in truth, they're just losses that are hurting you. I mean, you're, you're missing something and it's hurting. And, and, and there are those, those coordinates that give our lives direction and stability and um, and, and, and in fact, it's anything that we regard as important for our happiness. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. depression is the loss of what we think is important for our happiness, along with a tendency to hold ourselves accountable for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so we, we, you know, I'm such an idiot and all that stuff. And again, we go into those phases and you can kind of pull out of it mm-hmm. normally. And we do. And that's the kind of reactive. I think where depression gets a hold of us is where those my sense of loss about this situation, whatever this situation is, um, becomes begins to trigger um, very old feelings of um, being a failure, uh, not not really having what it takes to live life. Um, and, 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 and old wounds and old ideas and old self-image cognition, mm-hmm. you know, they become activated. And, and, then, and then the thing gets a grip. And then you get, you know, the inability to concentrate. Mm-hmm. Your, your mood is very down. Your energy is low. You can't sleep. Um, and and you're, 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 you're in the pits. Mm-hmm. And... and and that can last six months, and that's a major depression. The more often you have a fairly major attack of depression or mm-hmm. experience of depression, the, the easier it is to be triggered. Mm. So yesterday, I mean, I've certainly had my struggles with depression mm. that are well documented mm-hmm. <laughs> and published. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, of course, I never really spoke about them, you know, because, uh, you know, I, I was at the time... Whenever I've written or talked about things, I was much too ashamed to admit how bad they got. You know, um, I'm writing a book now, a kind of memoir, and Are I'm, you? I'm finding it even hard to be honest there. 
but I am. You know, I've just made that commitment. And, um, you know, I, I, I mean, I'm not proud because depression is not just something that happens. It's something that I do. You know, it's a verb, you know, and I behaved in a very self-centered way with my family. And um, I, I'm appalled at my lack of sensitivity, you know, um, and my inability to be there with them at times. Uh, it's not it's not pretty, you know, um, but if you've had a, a number of those, and I probably had in my life three or four, I would say, really bad over a couple of years. It, it doesn't take a lot to trigger. So for me, I don't get anxious. I'm not struggling with uncertainty. I'm not afraid of dying. I mean, I don't want to die, but, you know, but I do... I know that my, my fault line, my Achilles tendon heel is, is depression mm. and that that's where I can go. So I have to be careful of that and I have to notice myself slipping and I have to know what it is that, that kind of stabilizes me. Mm. You know, what gives me steadiness? What settles me? What, what gives me joy? But we, we, even before we get to that, you know, what, mm. what settles me down? Um, and, and, and sometimes it's just permission to do nothing, you know, to say, okay, I've been struggling at something, I'm just going to stop, you know, open a bottle of wine, watch a movie, and just relax. And, and, and that can help. Um, but, you know, for me, the thing that really is my anchor is the practice of mindfulness. And that's, that's and I mean, I would have come to that not as a, a fashion accessory, but as a kind of a, a life-saving, mm. like a life ring, you know, when you're drowning. And um, I find that extraordinary. What people need is not a solution when they're in an inflamed state of mind. They need soothing. They need calming. And they need presence. And they need care. And they need a cup of tea. And they need a biscuit and a rock button. And, they, you know, they, it's, it's, that's the level. And then down the road, we can look at, you know, let's think about how you're structuring the day. You know, because it's hard when you don't have structure, some shape, you know. Often the difficult thing when somebody's suffering from depression is that they're at a point where doing the next thing is harder than it's ever been. Like the stuff that you know will help, like walking or drinking green juice and how to break out of that state. And actually, I think you've just completely answered that there, that sometimes it's doing nothing and just maybe... I'm actually going to make this point, you know, that the vision of the sanctuary, which is a kind of an invitation to be more deeply, ourselves, to know ourselves more deeply and to be more present in the world. I mean, that's the, it came out of stand sitting around for years doing nothing. And <laughs> so, um, I will talk about this. And I, I have a great relationship with Stan and I'm allowed to slag her and I do mercilessly. <laughs> um, and it's great. Mm. But, you know, there's a real point to it. Um, and yeah, I, I think there is nothing as oppressive as a, you know, a list of five things you should do to get to not be depressed. I mean, that is so much pressure. It's what, yeah, um, it compounds the pressure. I, I, I always say, you know, if you had, if, if there was one thing you could do, just do one thing and do it badly. Mm. You know, one thing. And, and today I'll do one thing. And, and that was the lesson I learned from the, in my book, um, the woman I call Sarah, um, you know, I mean, I remember she was in hospital as a, as a patient and, you know, and I, I gave her this to read because she was an English, final year English student. And I said, would you tell me if this is, 
And then she read it and she said, you know, something I'd written and she said, um, oh my God, that is so insensitive. That is terrible. That's awful. How could you ask that? I said, what, what? I said, you, you three things you're asking people to do and you have no idea how hard it is to do any of those when you're depressed. Mm. So, she said, so she said, you've got to ask them to do one thing mm. and that might be turning on the light switch mm. beside me in the morning mm. or, or filling the dishwasher or whatever. Mm. Um, and, and, and I really got from her, you know, how insensitive we are to people who are in a very fragile state mm. that, that, you know, and I'm sure there are nurses on wards, I certainly met them, who are sensitive and who have that sort of knowing wisdom. Mm. And they would just say, ah, Mary, now would you go back and just put your clothes in the drawer, you know, or something like that. They wouldn't be intentionally doing it, but they have an instinctive sense of what this person can do. And, and also that it is important to do something. Mm. It's, it, it's mm. better to do something rather than nothing. Mm. So yeah, I, I think um, uh, being with in, in, a, in a kind way, and then, and it's more not what I should do, but actually it's about listening, it's tuning in mm. and listening to yourself, you know, as to what what do I need now? What would help? What, what could be the next thing? And, mm. If you're really listening, it's probably far simpler than you imagine, mm. you know, because mm. I should change my life, you know, I should lose 20 pounds, I should, you know, but actually what can I do now, mm. you know, just, mm. and, and the thing with depressed people that when I was treating them, you'd never ask them what you're doing with your life, you'd always mm. say, what do you want to do this afternoon, mm. you know, or tonight, you, you know, it's, it's, mm. it's now, it's here, it's very practical, mm. and the more depressed somebody is, the more practical you have to be. Yes. You've got to ask them, what are you going to do? Not what do you feel or why do you think this is happening? No, no. It's what they're going to do. When they get a little bit up and moving, you can start saying, how how really, what are the feelings that come back? And, and can we look at those together? Mm -hmm. And then the deeper issues that they've never spoken of, perhaps. But, but that's over months, you, you know. Mm -hmm. um, when you're in a crisis, a mental health crisis, it's, 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 you think in present tense you know um, okay, yeah, yeah. and then you get better you start thinking of the future and when you're really well you can look at the past yes. <laughs> so yeah. I did psychoanalysis I had a treatment for six years I always say not because I needed it it was just part of my training <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I said that for a group of GPs once you know and this old GP woman came up to me afterwards and says Tony, you must feel ashamed about getting therapy. <laughs> she missed the joke. Um, but anyway, I mean, I, I, you know, my conclusion from that, I didn't do it till I was 40, was that you need to be in the whole of your health to do psychoanalysis. Mm. Uh, I mean, we dug up some stuff that you could call it buried treasure, but it was, you know, um, it wasn't, it, it was difficult, you know. Is that, um, yeah. But, but I was strong enough and, yeah. I, you know, but that, that's, I'd never go digging yeah. in somebody who's acutely inflamed, yeah. you know? Um, so yeah, all these things are, when you stop and think about them, they're utterly um, straight, you know, obvious at some level. Mm. But, I, but the most important thing is that that person needs to know that somebody sees the pain they're in and somebody believes in them. What you said earlier about when we start self-blaming, would it be true to say that sometimes when if we're spiraling, spiraling into that, that sometimes if those feelings become overwhelming and unmanageable, we can start 
pushing our anger or our feelings outward and it can become a reaction of anger which we're seeing a lot of at the moment which I think people are struggling at that we're a lot of people are feeling very reactive and and quite easily angered would that be fair to say that that process can you know that can be one of the things that can come up I I think the the process is um that is, is I have some unwelcome or difficult or unpleasant feeling inside me um and I, I, I become, I don't know what to do with it. I can't shake it off. And I become um, frustrated with that. And the handiest thing to do is to try to repress it, deny it, push it away. Um, and what we deny, we project. Okay. So, so, so then the, 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 the you know, suddenly the, 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 I think I'm a loser. I can't bear that feeling. And then I'm walking down the shops and everybody thinks I'm a loser. <laughs> you know, I guess the other people are the cashier, the lady at the cashier is, is judging me for what I bought. You know, I bought rock coins <laughs> um, or too much alcohol or whatever it is. Um, you know what I mean? So, so we project and then I think um, we get slightly paranoid, you know, which is what follows from that. And that's where you get reactive, yeah. you know, um, but I, I think if there's a, a symptom of depression that I would highlight from all my experience, it's, it's not one that's written down. Well, it is somewhere, but um, it's hypersensitivity. You know, I just ah, yes. okay. You know, it's yeah. and it, it's yeah. You know, it's um, and and that's what people are struggling with. They're, yeah. they're, 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 as one fellow says, I have two nines dialed. You know. Um, or the milk is just boiling just at the rim. Yes, and exactly. all it takes is the tiniest additional heat. If the sun came in the window, it would boil over. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, and, and, and so I think that's... Uh, yeah, and again, it's just to, to notice that I'm feeling that way and saying, gosh, you know, come on, this is not easy. Um, what would help to just to, 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 to step back a bit and just... And look after this, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I, I just think uh, what came to me this morning was, I think all of us at some level, when we get very upset, we're wait, we're waiting for the cavalry to come, you know. And and some people tell us in the advertising that we should go to the cavalry, you know. I mean, that it's the, you know St Patrick's Mental Health Services. Mm-hmm. We're the cavalry. Come mm-hmm. to us, you know. Um, but I think it's more helpful in moments like that to say the cavalry aren't coming mm. there is no cavalry mm. you know there may be some one person we can talk to later on that's great but there's no cavalry there's no no one who would sweep in and just lift you you know mm-hmm. um and what i have is me <laughs> right now that's that's all i got and maybe you you know um and, and i gotta work with what i have you know um because i, I think a, a lot of what keeps things alive in us, keeps heart alive, is a, a kind of an unreal, unrealistic kind of thinking, you know, I, I mean, un, not, not irrational, just unreasonable. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Dunn Stores for sponsoring this series. And thank you to Cassie Delaney at Tall Tale Podcasts. Dunn Stores are proud sponsors of How to Fall Apart, the support series. We have an excellent fresh offer that is always great value. Make sure to eat well to mind your health.